Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, readers and listeners, this is the PRC Show. I'm your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. But it's actually Reading Parting the Waters, episode 004. That's the show we're doing today. And so, today, we are going to go right into chapter 5 of Reading Parting, Parting the Waters. But why are we doing this? Why are we reading this? Because I want to. That's why. I don't know if there's any other show out there talking about reading, par- reading Parting the Waters or the civil rights movement that's done in this type of way. Um, and I'm taking my cue off of a great podcast that I like called um, The Last Podcast on the Left. They do a show about cults and serial killers. And some of their best episodes are done when a guy reads a book, they, he kind of writes a script, and then a couple comedians kind of chime in and just make it very lively. They do a great one on... Uh, Jim Jones, and they also did a really good one on Brigham Young uh, or the whole Mormon thing. And it's they're usually many episodes, three or four. Ours is going to be probably over 100 episodes. <laughs> Who knows how many it's going to be, even if we get there. If not, we're, we're covering some fun stuff here. Um, so that's why we're doing it, because I want to and I want to learn about it. And it's fun to do this journey. Gabe, why are you doing this other than I'm telling you to do it? Well, there's... Uh two really good reasons one is that i think i had a lot to learn i take a lot an interest in the civil rights movement and and black freedom struggle in america but i always want to learn more and i get to feel alive and young when i'm learning and this book has been on my shelf for longer than i care to admit and the idea of feeling accountable to reading it with you and and having a partner to talk it over sounded uh, too good to be true Yes, exactly. This is the I, one of my friends emailed me and said, I bought this book. I'm going to now uh, I want to read this and dive in. So, Matt, start reading it. Um, so let's get into chapter five. We're in the Montgomery bus boycott. Let's cue up the action music. Dun, 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 dun. No, before we do that, what you're going to learn in this chapter is what group asked for a better type of segregation? We're going to learn about. Who was the first metrosexual in Montgomery, Alabama? I don't even know if that's a term anymore that we use, but uh, you'll see what I'm talking about later. We're going to learn about a fake news incident that almost ruins the bus boycott. We're going to learn about a character that reminds me about the movie Forrest Gump and how this person's life almost seems just fantastical and made for the Hollywood screen. And by the time you're listening to this, I'm certain there is a show that's being made. So if you're listening to this in 2025, there might already have been a Netflix show done. Who knows? And who was an unsung hero of the boycott or who started it, which we kind of covered last time, but we're going to get into more of that. So chapter starts in the total branch out of left field, literary device, whatever kind of way, talking about James Lawson. Who, who is he? He's an important uh, civil rights activist. He's it starts with him and it ends with him, but the entire chapter is void of him. <laughs> so he just gives a little teaser, I guess. So he's in India. He's uh, on missionary learning about Gandhian ways. And he says he learns James Lawson learns about the Montgomery bus boycott. He's a black guy. And he gets so excited and he's like, oh, my God, I'm here in India, but I want to get back to the States. I want to get involved in this. This is happening. I got to get back there. Uh, and then he actually ends the chapter with Lawson and King kind of striking up a relationship, which we'll get to later. Um, Gabe, annoyed by that little beginning part or not? Well, I feel like I've had that James Lawson experience. That's funny. Not not that I've been to Nagpur in India, but 
I was in Cape Town in 1997 doing work with the South African trade union movement when the Teamsters went on strike across the U.S. Uh, against UPS. Yes, big strike. And it was so exciting. Bringing back for, the labor movement. For me at the time that, oh, here is this union standing up and, and fighting to, to make progress. And in South Africa, nobody quite understood why I was so particularly excited about this package delivery strike in the United <laughs> yeah. States. But it made me feel from the other side of the world like something important and exciting was happening that I would like to be part of. And I think that's what Lawson is experiencing in that moment on from India. Right. So Branch then goes into like another little tidbit story that's not totally connected, but I think it's worth mentioning. And it's the sad story of Juliet Morgan. She's this reclusive librarian, he says. She writes, a. this is in Montgomery at the time, writes a letter to the editor. Do you remember this? You know, kind of praising the boycott and not even so much praising it, but saying like, listen, this is happening. History is happening right here. This is quite amazing that this boycott's happening. The times are changing. Uh, she writes this letter, and then white people start harassing her, throwing rocks at her, playing tricks on her in the library. Uh, and then a year later, this woman is found dead in her house or apartment, apparently from a suicide from all the harassment. Um, just pointing out how, you know, what a toxic time this was in a way, I guess. Um and so I want to put a little bit in context. I don't want to do too much here because the boycott's a lot. But what are we talking about with this boycott? Is it just we want to end separate but equal is uh, or better treatment? We're talking about full political rights, full citizen rights, you know, people being treated equally, equality before the law, not like a second class citizen. And just to go back, this should have been addressed in 1864, 65, 66, with the 13th Amendment. 13th Amendment, everybody knows. What's that one? Come on, no slavery. These are the three. And then the 14th Amendment, which is probably one of the, you know, in uh, 10,000 years, this is going to be the one that everyone's going to say is the most important, probably, law. Uh, equal protection. Everyone citizen gets equal protection. Like, that is equality. 14th Amendment. Citizenship. So citizenship for former slaves, anybody that's born here, citizenship. And then the 15th Amendment, uh, because that didn't, you shouldn't even need the 15th Amendment. I'm getting upset thinking about this because you're a citizen. But no, we have to hammer it home. 15th Amendment, right to vote. Regardless of, this is the, actually the, one of the shortest amendments of the Constitution. Regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, you have the right to vote. Again, should have been addressed in the 14th Amendment. Okay, sorry to be so illegal. Um... Gabe, any comments on my little brief history class? You don't well, have to. Ju just to say that uh, those attempts to change the course of American history after the Civil War to redress the injustices of, of slavery, of course, get derailed uh, with a political deal, I think, in 1877. And uh, the Reconstruction period is reversed. And a whole era of... Uh, authoritarian and uh, violent, effective sort of one-party racist domination is is put in place. And that's what is up for grabs in the Montgomery bus boycott. Yes, it is. So what is the Montgomery um, Improvement Association asking for? Okay, guys, get ready for this because this is crazy, but we're going to discuss it a little bit. Um, 
they're not asking to end segregation. Uh, in fact, King says, um, you know, that's a matter for the legislator in the courts. We just want justice and fair treatment for riding the buses. We don't like the idea of Negroes standing when there are vacant seats. Um, greater courtesy, you know, maybe hire some black bus drivers. And um, black people shouldn't have to get up for white people when the bus is full. So that's what the, the, you know, these initial set of negotiations, this is what they're asking for, which to me, when you learn this is kind of crazy. And in these negotiations, King overhears um, a white woman say something like, if we give in on that, we're going to have to give in on everything. And guess what? She's probably right. You know, you can't have just this little thing going on. Um, so they're having these negotiations. It's not going great. Okay. And this is where King's a better man than me, obviously, for God's sakes. But I want to kind of strangle him here because he says, um, he negotiates. He goes, uh, well, okay, fine. You don't have to hire black people, but can you just take their applications? I mean, he's probably like screaming inside, but to then lower the, 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 the ask to just, just take the applications. Um, and Joanne Robinson's there. And, you know, she's saying like, yeah, these bus drivers are jerks and they're negotiating with uh, it's some, you know, MIA and Women's Political Council. It's not a clear who's like on these committees. And then it's uh, the city officials and some people from the community and um, including white pastors, white pastors. Oh, my God. These white pastors are so annoying when he's I'm like screaming when I'm reading this because they're being so nice and kind of philosophical. And they say, oh, yeah. Some of these bus drivers are not courteous. They're not courteous to us, too. You are right about that. And like we're getting somewhere like this is about courtesy. OK, so um, uh, where do we go here? So the the, the white uh, leadership there or the, the city officials saying like, again, we can't have this half segregation thing because it's going to violate the law you can't have a black person sitting in the no man's land and 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 then ref what is it like get up when a white person like a white person then would be in the black area like if she if a white person gets on the bus and they have to like stand in the black area that's violating segregation so the segregationists i hate to say it are kind of right am i wrong well there's a point where branch is describing the, the sort of intricate and absurd dilemmas absurd. Of, of this situation. Absurd. And he, he says, well, a, a white woman's knee and a black man's knee might brush against each other. <laughs> and in, in that little phrase, he's sort of uh, referencing this sort of profound uh, sexual component to yeah, white supremacist yeah. ideology that the pillar of justification for Jim Crow is protecting white women and the sort of future of the white race from the threat of blackness. And they're discussing this um, in their suits and ties in this meeting room in Montgomery when what they're really, that's what they're talking about. This idea that mm -hmm. somehow uh, people being able to sit near each other on a bus is going to lead to rape yeah, yeah. It's a, so six days before Christmas, remember, that starts on December 1st, 
well, that's when Rosa gets uh, arrested. Um, this is where King's cool. I mean, King's always cool, basically, but I, this is where he shows a little white citizen council. Well, we'll get into it's a white supremacist. <laughs> it's like a suburban or whatever white people's group. Uh, Luther Ingalls, secretary of the White Citizens Council in Montgomery, joins in on the negotiations. And like, so they're negotiating with white city officials and some people from the community. And King's like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. This guy's a white supremacist. I mean, he doesn't say that. But he says this is disingenuous. This guy, he says he's anti-Negro. They go back and forth. King's upset. Um, he's like, you guys came here with preconceived notions. We're trying to negotiate. Oh, and then this woman who's not hip, but her name's hip. So I just wanted to make that terrible pun joke. Miss Logan Hip says, we didn't come here with preconceived notions. I was totally fine with the idea of a black bus driver because I have black people chauffeur me in my car. So I was willing to agree to that. You're the one that has the preconceived notions. Um, so this meeting did not go well. King's rejecting the white citizen council guy. And then this is where King's a better man than I, which is a funny thing to say because he is. But later on at night, so the negotiations then he goes home. And then he calls one of these white reverends to apologize to him, which he had no need to do. But this white reverend, he's like, you know, I'm sorry. I was, I came on a little strong back there. It wasn't very nice of me to, to be so, uh, whatever, aggressive. And the white reverend is like taken aback, like, oh, uh, you, you, we just have our position. And, you know, um, so the boycott is going okay, I would say. Branch says that, you know, one of the things that was going on is that they looked at King had a friend in Baton Rouge and there was a successful bus boycott that really isn't talked about. I didn't know about it at all, but it was successful. It lasted several weeks and it was successful in integrating the buses in Baton Rouge, which is in Mississippi. <clears throat> People knew that, I guess. And Louisiana. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. We have authority to talk on this book, please. I have a master's degree, Gabe. <laughs> I don't know why I wrote down Mississippi. Um, so they organized these carpools, and they told King about this. You know, They organized carpools because the city down in uh, Baton Rouge banned the use of like a cut-rate, unlicensed taxi service, which is going to become a big problem for them. Um, and then, so as they're going along... They have then passed the time that the Baton Rouge boycott was going on. And this is becoming like now the longest bus boycott that's ever occurred. And they're doing this uh, ride sharing taxi service and it's unlicensed and it's making there's going to be legal implications. Um, King's preaching at Dexter. Uh, this is a scene here where. Um, he's getting a little bit exhausted and an, an elderly lady comes up to him and says, listen, or I think she shouts out in the meeting. She's like, listen, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. I think this is pointing out that, you know, the community is with him. People are committed. They're now starting to boycott, uh, Christmas purchasing downtown. White store owners are not happy. Uh, the bus company's not happy because they might go bankrupt. And then you have this white citizen council, which really is a low point of humanity. Uh, they have a huge rally in, in uh, the city auditorium. Clyde Sellers, a city commissioner, comes in and barks out like, I'll never trade my Southern birthright for 100 Negro votes. And there's this idea, and you can see it in the eyes on the prize, that the political winds are changing a little bit. And people in the white community are thinking that acquiescing to 
softening up the segregation is really like a political move. And you, you need mm. to stay firm on segregation, and you can't just go with what's popular. Can I, can I uh, yeah, come please. in here? I, I think the, the, how the White Citizens Council uh, grows its power and influence during the boycott is worth noting and, and reflecting on for mm-hmm. our own times, right? This is a, the Citizens Council of America, which is popularly known as simply the White Citizens Council, I think has has m- most concisely been described to me as as the Klan in suit and tie. That, right, exactly. So they're going to use their economic power to fire workers, to um, put pressure on people, to exercise um, boycotts or or social intimidation. You know, to to put articles in newspapers identifying black people who are uh, fighting back or protesting against Jim Crow, and by targeting people and identifying them, what they would sort of call doxing today, knowing full well that the Klan, not in a suit and tie, can follow up what they're doing in the day with terrorism at night. Yes, which we will get into that violence, yep. And over the course of this chapter, we see the the elected political leadership of Montgomery, one after another, coming into the arms of the White Citizens Council. And it sort of goes to show how... uh, a far-right ideology, uh, an extremist political movement can gain traction uh, as one side fights, mm-hmm. the other can pick up steam as well and can shift the norms of politics. We don't have to make too many more references to contemporary oh, uh, sure, right-wing sure. politics, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's, it's really remarkable here how this group that you know and by the way the the, the legacy of this group goes on in, into the 21st century right um uh, people like uh trent lott you know n- not long ago the hmm. um republican senate majority leader i did not know ha- that. had to had to answer for speaking oh, okay at a, a citizens what? council meeting in, in mississippi and there uh steve scalise who is mm-hmm. in the house republican leadership today and very possibly could be in the majority leadership if the republicans win um, has also had to explain why in 2002 he was in a white supremacist political meeting in Louisiana. Hmm. So the mechanics of the bus boycott are uh, complicated because there's thousands, I mean, it's 20 or, I don't know, 20, 30, 40,000 people. It's, I get different numbers. I saw 20,000, 40,000 from different sources. And it's like 275 to 350 cars a day. Rufus Lewis is like the transportation chairman I believe, of the uh, M- Montgomery Improvement Association. And so um, they're struggling to keep this thing going, but people are either walking to work, doing this ride sharing, this like our low fee rides to work. And um, they're still negotiating back and forth. Um, MIA is still kind of suggesting compromises saying like yeah we could just to have a more humane and then the the preachers are like well why don't we just put some signs up and say this will be where the white people sit and this is where the black and it's like no no non-starter thank they're like not doing that um and again it, it goes down to this point it's like why do, we don't want to have to stand up it's crazy can can we just not have to stand up whenever the bus is full to give our seat to a white person like they're willing to say we can sit in segregated areas but in the no man's land we just don't want to have to stand up and again the segregationists are kind of right like we can't have white people getting up and moving back and forth it's going to violate the law so there's deadlock there's no progress made and now we're going to take a classic 
detour from Taylor Branch and put some meat on the bones of some of these characters. Grover Hall, editor of the Montgomery um, Advertiser. What an ass. What an ass, yes. But he's, oh, he is funny as hell. He, he's, he's kind of a jerk, but he's not... He's not a white citizen council guy. Right. Okay, so he's an eccentric dude. Is he a metrosexual? Yes. <laughs> and here's the evidence. Um, God, I sound like a jerk here. Whatever. I'm a metrosexual, so does it matter? Um, he cultivated his own eccentricity. This is what uh, Branch writes. To the point of decorating his apartment with manar birds and large stands of chamomiles? Camillas? I can't read. Um, Hall was a dandy. He had a wry humor and enjoyed scotch and his music collection, thought highly of himself and kind of, um, comes across as smart. Uh, by the way, Branch doesn't say kinda. He comes across as smarter than everyone and he tweaks both Southern racist and MIA folks. His, like, the way I read this is his sympathies probably lie with MIA, but he doesn't care that much. It's more about him, and he's kind of a jerk about it, because we're going to see some of the stories that he kind of puts out. So Hall, who's this reporter, is wondering how this happened. So if you're like a white, smart guy down there, it has to be the communists. It's definitely the communists. There's no way black people could be organizing this. Or it's outside agitators from the NAACP. Um there's that's them, not our, you know, not our little small town. Or, or, king. or, or could it be Lutheran pastor? Yeah. Robert okay. Grace? Oh, my God. Lutheran pastor. He's my favorite. Um, Lutheran. Is his first name Robert? Robert Grace. OK. He is like a childlike. This guy's like, have you ever heard of the book by um, Dostoevsky, the idiot? <laughs> it's about this guy that's like so nice that he just does all these things that are um He's almost like Christ-like, but it's like dumb. Like he gets himself into problems because he's just just all niceness. And that's what I think Robert Grates is because he's a white pastor. We talked about him last time. He's a white Lutheran pastor of a black church. And uh, Hall's like, oh, this is the guy. He's the guy running the show. Until he talks to him. And, and once he talks to him, he's like, this guy's naive. He has no idea. He, he actually says. Suicidally naive. <laughs> suicidally naive. And he has no idea like how, how dangerous this is. And when Hall's talking to him uh greats is like giddy over getting uh his association with the naacp and he's like yeah the naacp likes me and you know this is so cool what's happening it's like dude you're gonna get killed by like a bunch of white supremacists down here like what he doesn't say that obviously to him but it becomes very clear that he is not the mastermind to him uh, to the bus boycott so then grover writes a piece on king uh, spend some time at the church and I just want to say yeah. some, something obvious here, right? Like the idea that there has to be white people organizing this, whether it's a Lutheran pastor, whether it's the communist international, right? Whether it's the Jews, whatever it is, is in and of itself a racist idea that the black people would be unable to build a movement like this. And in fact, Hall, to his credit, picks up on this and he does publishes with you know with uh, sarcasm this comment by this woman who calls him and says, "Well, the communists must be organizing it." And he asks why, and, and the woman says, "Well, it just stands to reason, <laughs> right, right, right." And it's so it's not just that she's paranoid about outside communist influence or the Soviet Union taking over America. It's that she's saying, "Well, it stands to reason that black people aren't smart enough <laughs> yeah, to yeah. beat the city in a year long struggle." Yeah, and I'm going to pause for just my script writing because I want to go back and just say 
when we talked about King organizing that church, why is it successful? He had those political committees. He had the deacons that had, you know, you're responsible for these 25 people. E.D. Nixon has been involved for years. Durr, all these forces that are, uh, are, are, are components have been happening. I mean, that's a lot of work, Robinson and the characters. So um, if you didn't listen to episode 003, please go back and listen. You'll, you know, okay. Uh, so he writes that Hall writes this story it's called the boy he calls up i don't know if it's called like the boycott boss but it's basically calling uh king he is the leader he it's a little snobby about king like he's like oh he wants to use philosophical words right like he it's kind of like a jerk piece but, but, it's, it's true but like but but he realizes that he's actually read all of these philosophers and he has read these theologians yeah. and has fully worked out views it talks um uh, Branch describes Hall as going and getting Will Durant's sort of encyclopedic work on Western philosophy right, to, right. to check what King is saying and that King is actually talking sense from the point of view of, of popularizing philosophy. I think Hall realizes he's not dealing with a charlatan here. He's dealing with an intellectual who's an activist. Yeah, I, I – in- it seems like Hall wants to be the smartest man in the city and he writes like, okay, he does know this stuff, but he – I think he writes like he uses some of these things just to like he's making it seem like King is showing off when I don't think King right. is obviously. And and look, it would be inconceivable for Hall not to be racist. Because, <laughs> right. How in yeah, the yeah. world could you grow up in Alabama as a white person and as a person of letters and be at, at, at the center well, of Durr's the political not. system? So neither is Virginia. The Durs aren't. I think there's some. Well. It, well some interesting examples, and we don't have f- full portraits of them, right? Yeah. But that um, that he's that that Hall has to figure out yeah, yeah. that King is what he appears to be, yeah. Because he's he's first of all he's doing reporting, yeah. and he's working his way through some prejudices of his own, I think. Okay, so they're having these uh, massive church meetings, regularly attended. Uh, I just wanted to point out this is pretty amazing too that these church meetings are having, you know. Tons of people. Not that there's not that this is the main reason, but like there's no TV. I don't know how strong the church is today, but this is like a big component of life in the 1950s. So it does make it. I don't want to say it's, it makes it a little easier. Is that fair? Yes. I'm, I'm going yeah, off on y- a win. Yes, and something has changed here, right? I'm I'm sure the church attendance across America is higher in the mid fifties than it is um, in, in 2021, I'm sure. And I'm sure that in the black community at this time in Montgomery, it's, it's high. That being said, right. Black people had been going to church in Montgomery in 1954 and 1953 and 1952. Right. Right. But this mass movement taking shape is exceptional and remarkable. Yeah. Right. It's like making the newspaper in Nagpur in India. Right. Right. Or Lawson to read right. about it. It's, it's a, it's just hard and, to and conceive. It didn't, it, it didn't happen in Baton Rouge, right? It, it, like th- this is something that the right people, the right leadership, mm-hmm. at the right moment have come together. And then we get our first uh, fake news story. Oh my God, I hate the media. <laughs> no, I don't. January twenty first, the AP. This is twenty or nineteen fifty six. The AP wire says the boycott's over. This is not true. So it's a Saturday night. But come on, like th- this is not the AP 
concocting this. It's not. This, this is the. Oh yeah, that's true. It's the political adversaries trying to defend white supremacy. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who have tried to co-opt a group of people to create this. You know what? Good point. Uh, this fraud. Thank you, Gabe, for correcting me because this really isn't fake news. This isn't the media faking this out. This was, um, three Negro preachers agreed to these demands, and that was not made up. And emergency calls one out like this. King's like heart sinks. Like what in the? This is everyone's freaking out. They call. They find out the names to th- these three preachers. One of them is this guy Bennett, and it turns out that they are three like country. Not they're not part of MIA. They're not into this at all. And they just kind of agree, I guess, and it gets printed. But because of the strong organization and the commitment, uh, well, not only that, they do like a mass communication. To everybody, it says this is not true. Or on Monday, thank God it happens on Saturday night. And they and they go do house calls at Juke. They joints, do which house is calls. The yes, best. yes, 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 yes. So they go to house calls, and you and like if you remember from your reading, if I don't know if we mentioned this, King's like a very dapper dresser. They called him Tweety. He's like you know goes to the so he goes to these bars and juke joints, and it's like listen, guys, I just want to have your attention while you're smoking and drinking and all that stuff. The boycott's still on, and everyone's like, sounds good. We don't read the paper anyways or whatever. Who cares? We're doing it. So Monday morning, buses are empty. So this backfires. Mayor Gale, uh, or Gala, how do you say his name? G-A-Y-L-E. Gale? Let's go with Gale. Mayor Gale is upset. He's blaming King and the black community. And he's going to get more upset because Fred Durr and Cliff Durr are talking to the New York City NAACP about pushing this to a federal court case. Okay, I want to pause on this, on my notes, because, again, if you're not familiar with this, you would have thought, like, oh, the NAACP sort of of this boycott, and they had a lot. They weren't even involved, and they were appalled at what they were asking for, which is kind of, they're right. So the NAACP is saying, we're not going to fight over humane segregation. Your demands have to be full integration. This is absurd. But also... um, the NAACP was not really a activist, nonviolent street theater, whatever you want to call it. They were a legal. Uh, that was the main source of their activity. Fundraising. And I think at one point they say, uh, well, Lawson actually later on that chapter says Lawson and King are like, yeah, the NAACP, it's all lawyers and banquets. Um, but that's important. I mean, you need to have the, the smart uh, legal strategy and all those things. But Gray, attorney, the, the attorney Gray and Cliff are having a hard time finding some clients. They actually get Claudette Colvin and a couple others, and they push forward with a, a case. And they know this isn't going to go well. Um, and then white society starts putting pressure on black people. Uh, Joanne Robinson, who's like the slowest driver or whatever, she gets speeding tickets. She says she gets 17 speeding tickets for going too fast or too slow. Traffic fines start uh, draining the MIA treasury. King gets arrested for going 30 in a 25, uh, and he gets literally arrested. I mean, not just a speeding ticket, but like, you're under arrest. You're going 30 in a 25. They take him out of his car, put him in a paddy wagon or the police car. And this is like a really scary scene that Branch writes about. So he's like going out of town because he doesn't know where the jail is. And he's like, oh my God, they're going to kill me. I'm going to get lynched. This is going to happen. And he's not wrong to think that because that shit happened. Um... So his nerves are tested. He gets thrown in jail with the town drunk. He's like, okay, they're not killing me. Um, He gets out of jail. And then from that moment on, he's uh, got a chauffeur. 
Okay, we also should, we got to mention this, but like he's getting death threats all the time, people calling him obscenities. Then he has this like, he writes about a king. Go ahead. I I, want to come back to this piece about going into jail because it reminds me about the experience that um, Rosa Parks has. That Branch uses, without a quote, he uses a racial epithet to describe the difference between uh, Negroes and people in this category he's describing with a racial epithet, mm-hmm. which is basically respectable black people who don't go to jail and then black people who are not respectable who go to jail, right? Mm-hmm. And that this, in addition to the physical fear uh, of being tortured or murdered or disappeared uh, after being arrested or going into jail, there's also this social stigma of people who see themselves as having some standing and would it differentiate themselves from the most poor, the most excluded, the most marginal people in the black community. But what happens to Rosa Parks or what happens to uh, Martin Luther King is that they go into jail and they come out and they're actually stronger in their Mm -hmm. resolve. And it's something which replicates itself again and again in this chapter and and in the history of the movement. And in fact, it's one of the things that is a a, a grievous kind of wound Mm -hmm. to to Jim Crow, that the movement creates a way to take away the stigma Mm, of going to jail. And we will talk about that. That's clearly a super important like scene later on. So King, good point, Gabe, good point. King is... uh, not feeling great though about the boycott and not feeling good about his role. And he has this like nighttime breakdown, what he, which he remarks on later in life. And he gets down on his knees. I think it's like in his house. And he says like, I've come to the point where I cannot face it alone. I can't do this anymore. And then like, it's a real emotional when you're reading it. I, I kind of felt like, you know, a heavy heart, almost tearing up. And an inner voice says, you can do this, dude. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't say dude, but you can do this. You're doing the right thing. I'm getting choked up now and, thinking and about Hall, it. Hall, of course, being a jerk, describes this as the conversion in the kitchen. That's right. Because does he talk? Because King then mentions it right. at um at I, the at the church. Yeah. Right. A year later. God, and, Hall's and, such and a jerk. Hall, Hall is a sort of uh, pouring piss all over Yes. It. Yes. He's a jerk. Um, And I want to say, if I was King, I would have... The first death threat I would have got, I would have went up to Boston and <laughs> teach at a university because this is crazy. He's getting, de- I mean, this it's, just, it's not even that bad yet, but he's getting like calls and death threats, but he's like marching on. I'm going to do this. Okay. So there's tension between Roy Wilkins, who's the head of the NAACP uh, and King and, but King gives support to the NAACP, but you know, Wilkins is like, we can't have nice segregation, you know? Um, Oh, that's on. that's part of the tension. The other part of the tension is about organization and control and money. That's and yeah. What one of the things and and it, you really have empathy for King having to understand and deal with all this and navigate this as it as it takes place and and in the aftermath because it's not it's not like he's spent his life. No, he's not in, getting no. Yeah, there's no there's no support right now. It's just right. like these guys down there. You had Edie Nixon and Durr, but like there's not a lot of uh, international or national support yet. No, but but because they've built this true mass movement, and because it's working and succeeding, and because it's getting media coverage, then 
people want to give money and support it. Mm -hmm. And so they find themselves in a position where the MIA, which is a new organization, is raising more money than the, the NAACP. Yep. Yep. So suddenly, Roy Wilkins, the, the leader of this organization, which brought about the um, Brown versus Board of Education case with Thurgood Marshall at the Supreme Court, suddenly they're in a position where they have less money than the MIA, yep. but the NAACP is supposed to support the MIA in court. Like you can be a little, the, a little sympathetic to Wilkins you can here. Be, and yes. Wait a second. How are we going to organize ourselves? And they're a bunch of rookies. Like they're a bunch of rookies. Who like are these not, people? Yeah. Exactly. Right. And uh, there's also like a, yeah, Thurgood Marshall's like, this is big boys work or something. I forget the quote. I'll probably get to it. So they, they have a decent relationship and King kind of, it's just as nice as he can be to, to Wilkins, I think. Like, he tries to be nice, and he says, I'm, we're going to be a lifetime membership. Um, also, just to highlight, there is white support quietly to these riders. There's incidents, incidents, that's the right word, of, you know, women kind of throwing some money into uh, some of the people's pockets as they walk, or, hey, I'll give you a ride, uh, don't tell my husband type of thing. I don't know if... Branch mentions that, or the Garrow book, but no. Br Branch gets into it, and and of course the 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 boycotters tell these stories back in the church. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's part of the way organizationally that that the mass meetings yeah. sustain the movement. That people will tell these stories to each other, and it's it it goes to several things. I think first of all, some genuine humane relationships. Yes, but also the way in which. Um, well-to-do white people are in fact dependent on black domestic labor yeah and so they need them and they and they have to maintain those personal relationships they they got to figure out how to get them to their houses in order to sort of reproduce their their day-to-day -day privileged position which it which gets in the way of the hard line that the white citizens council and the political class increasingly want to take against the boycott all right and then uh Okay, so violence is something that's going to not go away, and it starts to happen. So King's house gets bombed, and this occurs when he's actually at one of these meetings, and Abernathy calls him back and says, hey, you know, he's up there preaching, I think. I got to talk to you. Coretta and the—he goes back there. Coretta and the kids are fine, but there's a scene there. A bunch of black people show up. White people show up. There's guns, knives. King calms the crowd. Sellers shows up, and King correctly says, like, you started this. You created this atmosphere, which I was like a little surprised that he he's he pushes it a little bit. Like he's not like just saying like let's be calm and violence. He he acknowledges like man, this is your fault. Uh, you know, I would have been screaming and yeah. This is a great scene though because Sellers is trying to control the crowd and no one's listening to them. The police says the the crowd's not going to leave until King addresses the crowd and says that this family's okay. So King holds up his hand, asks for silence, and says, take home your weapons. We are peaceful people. And he says, I did not start this boycott, and, and that if I am stopped, it will continue. What we are doing is just, and God is with us. You know, it's a pretty tense scene. Uh, and then, I don't know if Dad King is there or not, but he wants him out of the movement. There's, there's a lot of tension between Dad King and MLK. He wants him to go back up into Atlanta. I, I, I want to just go back a second to what you were saying about King's leadership role in dis, uh, dispersing a mob 
um, in the hours after his house has been bombed with his family in it. Like very cool and under pressure. <laughs> he he has um, made reality the claim he made at the beginning of the boycott that this is not like what the White Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan does, right? And he's he's also, um, for me, showing the the sort of cynicism and poverty of mainstream commentators or politicians or writers who say, well, look, these black civil rights agitators are, are like the Klan. Both sides cause conflict in society. We should really find the middle path, right? That, of course, the kind of politics that Sellers is doing and the White Citizens Council is doing is encouraging terrorism. And King is dispersing the potential for violence. King is who he says he is. And those people who are criticizing him I think are liars. Right. Absolutely. He's practicing what he preaches. Literally. So then, unfortunately, on February 1st, a bomb explodes at Edie Nixon's yard. So, you know, the violence is continuing. Then Branch discusses the riots at Alabama University due to, you know, this is not really connected, but he's peppering in context. Authoring Lucy's arrival. She's going to college. She's a black lady, African-American. Uh, she was suspended. <laughs> the university suspended her. Oh, my God. What is wrong with society? Before she could a attend lot. class. <laughs> what is wrong? My God. So she gets suspended. And the NAACP is like, we did this whole thing to get you in. And now you're spending her the day before or, the, the you know, <sighs> Alabama White Citizen Council is huge. They have a huge rally. Um, and then MIA leaders are in jeopardy of like anti-boycott laws. Oh God, this is so crazy. So there's this thing called like battery or baratry, baratry, which is like a fake loss. Like you could get in trouble from the courts by having like a fake lawsuit. And MIA and Fred Gray are worried they're going to charge him with this, which they do <laughs> later on. I mean, it's preposterous. Um, and then there's the boycott. The, the boycott could be deemed as illegal because it's without cause. But there is a cause. I mean, there's a reason. So they're worried that this 1921 anti-boycott law is going to, like, screw their, uh, you know, whole transportation thing. Um, and let's take a little pause and a musical break there. And then we will get back to a Forrest Gump-like character. now getting into one of the most interesting characters in the book in American history possibly at least Branch thinks he is so this is 
think of the movie Forrest Gump, and you'll see why in a second. Am I wrong on that, Gabe? Or should I talk first, and then you can get back to my Forrest Gump comment? Do that. Okay. Bayard Rustin. He's a 46-year-old guy at this time, so not the youngest cat in the kitchen. But as a 46-year-old, I would say also not so old. Yeah, not so old. Not so. Oh, very good. Okay, yeah. Um, he has a history of membership in... Uh, he's actually from Pennsylvania. Young Communist League. Pacifist. Big thing. Bayard... Um, Branch calls him kind of a vagabond. Lived around. Sophisticated collector of African and pre-Columbian art. Though lived a life like a hobo. Lived on sofas. Couch surfed. So he's born in 1910. Uh, he's the last of nine kids. But actually... He wasn't the last of nine kids because his mom was his grandma and he was the young, he was the kid of one of his older sisters, but they, he didn't really learn this until later in life. Okay. This is just crazy. So he grows up in this 16 room mansion. Remember, this is a African American in Westchester, PA, kind of a nicer part of town, nice part of town, black family, huge family living in this mansion, but they're not rich either. They kind of get the house. It's murky details, maybe through some like wealthy people. Who knows? Um, smart guy wins a lot of contests at school. Um, then after that, he gets involved in uh, the Communist Party. And one of the things that attracts him to this, which I didn't know, this I found funny, was if anybody's familiar with the communist history, uh, the Soviet Union did these show trials, trials that were phony baloney, but they used it as a way to make a political point. And there's a show trial of a, in New York of a Finnish guy that the party puts on trial and says, you were mean to black people. <laughs> so it's kind of good, but it's not real. But just to say, like, we're tough on uh, discrimination and bigotry. And the Communist Party was very serious about race. Uh, what is the evidence for this? They had, like, integrated nightclubs in Harlem, in, in Harlem. Remember, this is like the 30s. 40s peak of kind of people are involved in uh, the party. It's not sullied by Stalin as much right now. Okay, now this is where it gets to the, the the Forrest Gump aspect. So then he's he's involved in the party. He's recruiting. He's also like a singer, and he's a very good singer. And he's singing background uh, backup for Lead Belly, a f like world famous. No one's going to know about Bayard Rustin in 300 years, or hopefully they do. But Lead Belly has written huge songs. He's going to be known. He's like in the background singing for him. It's like, is this real? So he's recruited in the CP, doing all this stuff. Then 1941, Soviets enter the war, and Rustin's like, oh, this is the best time of my life. I've been like doing all this activism, recruiting, traveling around, but I can't support this war. I'm out. And it's, you know... He leaves over his principles. You got to respect the man, right? No, I think you've got it slightly wrong here. It's not a pure pacifism, right? This is the Communist Party changing its line and alienating him. So can I say why I think what, what I think is happening here? Oh, okay. But but it's right that it was that was the impetus for him leaving. Yes. Okay. But not... Go ahead and clarify. But, but not, out of, not out of pure pacifism, right? So he's a complicated guy rustin right he's he's raised as a quaker right so he's exposed to the really the oldest protestant pacifist tradition i think um certainly in the english language but he's joined the communist party he's joined the communist party uh, and is a recruiter for the party and is 
culturally engaged in the sort of popular front culture, which led, led Belly is also along with people like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and others. But the problem is this, that once um, so in, in a period of time where the Communist Party is criticizing the U.S. and wanting to challenge institutions in the U.S., organizing against racism makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But once the U.S. is going to come into the war, right, on the side of the Soviet Union, then the party has to put a stop to that. Because now the U.S. is aligned to the Soviet Union in its struggle for life and death. And we can't have things going on in the U.S. that are going to be disruptive of the war effort or even highly critical of the government at all, right? So the party is saying this agitation around race has got to stop. And Rustin, you have to take on a new mission. And he's not prepared to do it, which is which is yes. also explains why he's yes. att attracted to A. Philip Randolph, who says, you know what, so there's a war effort. We want there to be equality in the war plans. I'm going to lead a march on Washington to take on the Roosevelt administration because it's not all right to be fighting fascism and racism overseas and perpetrating it at home. He sides with Randolph. Randolph, of course, wins on the issue. But it's this is a thing which happens again and again and again in yeah. the history of the communist yeah. movement, that the party makes this turn based on what's happening in Moscow and principal people end up either having to follow the line or they end up splitting. If you just joined us now, this episode is uh, you're listening to the Bayard Rustin uh, history podcast and we're not leaving yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, this is an aside, but from my own knowledge, I think I remember this is a theme of Rustin again later on when the Vietnam War distracts from the civil rights movement and he is a stickler for that. Am I, if this is not written about, we're taking a total left field detour, but, um, you know, maybe we can get to book three <laughs> if we ever get there. Uh, so, okay, let's get back into the show, Reading Parting the Waters, episode 004. So... He joins the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Does everybody know what that is? No, you don't. Because I, I mean, what is that? That is a religious, peace and justice, pacifist organization headed by, I guess, some white guy named A.J. Must something. I don't know. It's like a anti-war thing, you know. Uh, he meets up with James Farmer, who Branch labels as a Negro aristocrat, who's also part of the, we'll call it the... F-O-F-O-F-O-R. He's a member of CORE, which CORE stands for Congress on Racial Equality, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And F-O-R um, has started CORE. Okay, right. So Rustin gets into Gandhi, nonviolence. He reads Krishnala Srindarhani, War Without Violence. This becomes a seminal work in the CORE. They say maybe like the official kind of like core, semi-official core Bible. He takes this nonviolence thing super seriously. Like he's at anti-war demonstrations. He's at free India committee stuff. And when people beat him over the head, he's like, gives them, a, he's like, go ahead, keep doing it. I'm not going to hit you. Like real hardcore. In fact, he loses his teeth. Um, he went to jail for being a conscientious, oh, I can't say that word, objector. In 1947, he joins CORE. Okay, this is another thing I don't know. You learn stuff new when reading this book. He goes on a bus ride in the South, Freedom Ride. Who knew? 
this was testing the Supreme Court ruling uh, the black passengers on the interstate roads didn't have to sit at the back of the bus. Well, how did that work out? <laughs> he got beat. Oh, my God. So he's getting beat up. Um, and then Branch Rights, due to some like, mishap with NAACP lawyers, he has to go to jail and work on a chain gang. Cue the Forrest Gump movie. Okay. Um, so after he's in the chain gang, he goes to India, meets up with Kwame and Krume, the nationalist leader of uh, Ghana. And he kind of comes back as like a, a bona fide Gandhian intellectual. He protests the Korean War. Oh, that's when he loses his teeth. Sorry. Um, and then let me just read what Branch says here. He says he could make such a solemn speech and then abruptly break into a grin of delight and say he needed to go Gandhi somebody into giving some money for a march. He had a strong sense of the absurd and a gift for parody, both of which were enhanced by his modified Cary Grant ac accent. He drank with Dylan Thomas, Norman Mailer. Oh, and he was gay. <laughs> um, and he got in trouble for having sex with men in parked cars. Um, and this is a problem because it's 1956, whatever, 50s or 40s. And it, you know, he's a black guy. He's an ex-communist. He's an ex-con and he's gay. But he's like, I got to go to the bus boycott and help out. Um, how is this guy not? I mean, they need to make a movie of this guy. I mean, I, he's one of the most remarkable and and inspiring people. He has this life that that's really hard to hard to credit and and ends up in a very complicated position you're right um towards the end of his of, of his life uh, sort of on the right wing of the american uh labor movement but he could not get away with this stuff by the way if he wasn't super cool and like lovable and fun and like the, the comedy stuff that Cary Grant stuff, he just sounds like a really cool guy. Like, like if, 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 if he, best. if he just had slight, I mean, unfor it's unfortunate but if, his, if his personality was slightly a couple ticks to cranky, this guy's done. Well, I mean, he, um, branch gets carried away. I mean, the, the, the most egregious writing foul. And I think also editing follows because the editor didn't catch this is that in one sentence he describes him as, as living a life as a hobo. And then the second sentence after that talks about how he's got this uh, collection of uh, pre-Columbian right. and African yeah, yeah. art. And of course, you, you you can be a hobo or you can be an art collector, <laughs> but you can't be both. Unless you're, yeah, we've got a, a big uh, bag or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, OK, so Bayard Rustin, that's him. Why is he important? Because he comes down to Montgomery. That's why. Are you guys listening? <laughs> so let's get back to Montgomery. City commissioners give an ultimatum. Oh, yeah, this is really ties in. Branch is a good writer. Let's give him credit. They say, listen, jail's looming. You guys got to accept our crapo terms. Eat this crap sandwich, as they say. Um, or else we're going to, like, arrest you all for this boycott. Rustin comes into town. I'm not sure the exact timing of this, but he meets up with Abernathy. Abernathy's like, uh, it's like a short conversation. And then he meets with my man, Nixon. I'm calling him my man now. He's one of my faves. You like Nixon too, though, right? Nixon is an absolutely fantastic, yes. impressive person. Yes. And of course, they have uh, A. Philip Randolph in common. So immediately. Yes, 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 yes. You couldn't imagine two people with a different life experience. Oh my God. But, yes. they, but they both revered this trade union leader. Who and has so, yeah, them both. Uh, so I, I apologize because I wasn't listening to you when you talk, but they, <laughs> they, um, they, <laughs> yeah, Nixon has this A. Philip Randolph thing. And did you mention how, um, 
when he goes back to work with Randolph, like he had bad blood for Randolph for a while for being anti-communist. And Randolph just kind of like, that's fine, whatever. Let's continue to work together. Well, right. He's he he's he's saying um, we're talking about Rustin. Right. Right. Earlier on, Rustin is like, look, I know you're a socialist. I just left the Communist Party. Is that a problem? Randolph is like, I don't care. Yeah. Right. And, and by the way, a fellow Randolph does this for him in. Uh, later in the story as well, which we can we can talk about later. But the the sort of um, tolerance and understanding of the importance of cultivating people of quality with organizing capacity. It's, it's one of the reasons that Randolph is a really remarkable leader. Awesome guy. And there is an uh, I can't remember what CD it is. I have a picture of it. Maybe I'll try to put it on my sh- on the podcast. There's a huge bronze statue of A. Philip Randolph, which I'm sitting on. In one of the train stations, I think in D.C. or Boston. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Have you been seen it? Yeah. Is it in Boston or D.C.? It's in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's like, oh, this is a good thing. This is good they have this. Uh, so Nixon, whatever night this is, Nixon and uh, Rustin, totally kind of two different dudes, talk all night, talk about Gandhi and politics. There's this looming uh, jailing that's going to occur. And Rustin's like, dude, here's what you do. He doesn't talk like that, but he's like, don't worry about this. Just use the nonviolent philosophy. Let's go there and get arrested. We're not going to have them coming after us. We're going to take the winds out of our sails, and we're going to all turn ourselves in, and it's going to be like a big theater. And Nixon's like, yeah. So am I getting this right, that this is basically a Rustin idea? Um, King is actually up in Atlanta at the time, so he's... Yeah, that makes sense. This is going to happen. I'm I'm for this. That sounds like a good idea. And it totally works. There's like 115 people that get arrested. They all go in. They're kind of laughing and, and carrying on. They're getting fingerprinted. And then not only does it work for boosting morale of the, the people in the movement and the MIA. The cops start joking around. The cops start joking around and the newspaper covers it and makes fun of the city commissioners to say, this backfires. And as you were mentioning earlier, Gabe, this is taking the stigma out of jail and it's energizing the movement. And who? it's all because of Forrest Gump. <laughs> I mean, it's all because of Rustin. Right. You know, who? I don't think there's not, it wouldn't have happened this way. I, when you keep talking about Forrest Gump, it's because he's. Oh, I got to stop that. It's yeah. because he's everywhere at the moment that's that, of this remarkable thing happening. Not in the sense that he's a moron, because he's actually. Right, a right, 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 right. No, I. Okay. Let me. Thank you for saying that. That movie is so ridiculous because he's like in every single spot in world history. Like he's here, he's there, he's, you know, ping right. pong, and then he's in the. Vietnam it's really Robert, Robert Grace who's the idiot. <laughs> Yeah, Robert Grace is kind of like he's just so pure. He yeah, can't yeah. Help it. good point. Actually, yeah, Robert Grace is like Tom Hanks. Rustin is like everywhere. They're just crazy, you know. But you know what? He didn't have kids, so he didn't have to like deal with all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so then Rustin and King hook up, and Rustin starts talking the whole nonviolent language and explaining the need for for training. And King's like, "Yeah, I like what you're saying. This is cool. Let's 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 talk more about this." But yeah, he's an outside person. There's that outside agitator thing. And I think we all kind of know he's gay and that's a problem or that's kind of on and, his and rap. And he's told this lie to the police about why he's there. He, he says he's a Brit. He, he, he's like a, a French he, newspaper he, journalist. He, he, right. He claims to be working. <laughs> for Le Mans. For, I work for Le Monde or something right, like that. Yeah. Uh, Figaro and also yeah. the Manchester Guardian. And uh, once foreign reporters start showing up, of course, they realize that's not who he was. Yeah. 
So, so, um, so Rustin, to his credit, he's like, okay, yeah, 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 I'll leave. Um, but I got to get one of my guys in here to help you, King. So he gets Glenn Smiley. <laughs> what a great name. Um, he's a pacifist, mild-mannered white preacher to come down and talk to King about nonviolence. As soon as he gets to King's house, he says, you got to get the guns out of your house. Get these guns out of your house. And he's right. Um, he becomes a trusted advisor. And I just think it's funny that King and Smiley are both words that you can use outside of names. Anyways, national scene. We pull back again because Branch keeps doing this. <sighs> okay. Uh, this is what the Garrow book doesn't do. I think I've mentioned that a million times. So what's Eisenhower doing about this? This issue. It's it's in the press. It's kind of out there. Not much. Okay. Um, he's taking a report from Hoover. Hoover's like looking into this. Are they communists? I'm not really sure. And Hoover says, well, we got some white citizens councils down there. They could be the way to control the tension. That could be one way. Just let that play out. Or it might be where the point of contention kind of boils over. Um, but he's not interested in dealing with it at all. Branch writes that Eisenhower is uncomfortable around black people. He's been around segregated military his whole life. He's really not interested in it. Um, however, the attorney general, uh, oh, I thought this was funny actually by Eisenhower, what he says. He's not dumb. He, um, there's this independent civil rights commission and it's looking into the racial violence. And, uh, Eisenhower says to, to the attorney general, he's like, all right, proceed cautiously. Don't become another Charles Sumner, <laughs> which, okay. Does anyone else find that funny? Charles Sumner was the senator during the uh, civil prior to the Civil War that literally got his head beaten in for um, saying slavery's bad in on the Senate floor. So he's like, cool your zeal. Like, don't, well, let's not push this. I don't know. Did you laugh at that? I, I like that, but Eisenhower also has, has political instincts because I think he understands that the, the sort of liberal crusading uh, Equality aspect of the Democratic Party is contradicted by its whole white supremacist Southern wing. And I think he knows that there could be a way that this could rebound to help Republicans and help him. Right. So a um, little more context. There is this Southern manifesto that's signed by 90 congressmen that's like we're anti what's going on here. We're for integration. 90 people sign it except for three. No, you got it backwards. Sorry. It, it, the, the, the Southern Manifesto is saying we're going to defend segregation. That, that Yeah, right. What did I say? I think you just, I think. This Whatever. The, the way you said it, I think you got it backwards. Okay, yeah. The, yes, the Southern yes, Manifesto yes, is yeah, segregation yeah, yeah. now. Segregation forever type it, of deal. You know, let's deal. not get into that. But um, there's three people that don't sign it. Estes. Kofover. Kefauver. Which is in another podcast of mine about the Sacklers. Um, and then Albert Gore and LBJ. LBJ does it for s super shrewd political reasons. But we'll talk about that maybe another right. time. Gore and Kefauver, I think, are actually white Southern Democrat regular liberals, which is crazy. very hard position to hold. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Okay. Um, 1950s. It's March 1956. King goes to trial. Um, about this boycott. And he's like, I didn't start the boycott. He kind of plays dumb. Like, I don't. And guess what? He didn't because Joanne Robinson did, guys. That's who I'm. In my brain, Joanne Robinson, she's she's the best. She's the one that really did it because if it wasn't for the mimeograph going into college, come on. So he plays dumb. I'm kind of being funny there. Uh, 
and uh, he's found guilty and he has to pay $500 fine and then he has to do hard labor. I don't understand where I got lost on why he didn't end up going to jail. Um, but this energizes the movement, really. The celebrities get involved big time. This becomes a huge thing. Beyonce, John Legend, they start giving money. Harry Belafonte, okay, he's the guy, not John Legend or, you know, AOC, actually kind of an AC, Adam Clay Powell Jr. Although I think the moment with Belafonte is a nice moment because we saw Belafonte was, um, uh, his instinct was to defend Du Bois, right? He's influenced by Robeson, you know, to, yep. be, to be blunt, yep, Harry, sure. Harry Belafonte is a communist fellow traveler yes, at yes. least right yeah and had been in the left union during the war and so on and so he's skeptical of, of he's pastors, skeptical yeah he, they say he's, he's won skeptical over preachers. by king which is a wonderful moment yes he's skeptical uh, preachers and maybe yeah like they're not doing enough um so the NAACP is sticklers for the strategy let me see here hmm. oh the fundraising this is where the point of contention as we talked about before uh wilkins is like god you guys are getting so much money um, King becomes a lifetime member. And then uh, in Alabama, um, you know, hold on one second. Let's take a quick break here because I want to, we have one more major thing to say. Okay, so we're back, and uh, the NAACP gets banned in Alabama. Mm. Governor Patterson bans it, so that's another reason why funding, I guess, probably increases for uh, MIA. Um, the boycott is going okay, actually still going strong, and then we get a bit of a victory. A local federal judge ruling two to one struck strikes down the segregation ordinance. Big win, huge, yes, yes, yes. But as this is going on, there's still violence occurring. And there's corruption now in the funds. All this money's coming in. These people aren't experienced. I think his name is Ural Fields, if I can get it correctly. There's some mismanagement of all this money that's going, like, you got to pay for the gas. There's maintenance on the cars. Pay these drivers. And um, it's kind of a scandal that goes into the media publicly. And some people say, like, well, at least they're honest about it. And they're pointing out their flaws. Like, that was the way Grover Hall, I think, wrote about it. Um uh, this tension with the NAACP is interesting, though. I don't want to beat it with a dead horse, but Thurgood Marshall, Thurgood Marshall eventually becomes Supreme Court Justice, major lawyer, kind of like belittles King, like this is men's work, he says. They're worried about this nonviolent model. It's not in their wheelhouse. They're not, that's not what they do. They're in the court, you know. So you can you can kind of see like, you're going to get mowed down. Maybe you shouldn't be doing this. You guys don't know what you're doing. And they kind of don't. They're they're making it up as they go along in a, in a way with a lot of support. But, Gabe? Yeah. I, I You said earlier that um, King is, is nice and, and sort of conciliatory to Wilkins. He, he does do these things that are conciliatory, and he goes to speak at their conference, uh, you know, pledges his church to be a sort of permanent member. But at the same time, he defends the right of the MIA to raise its own money. And of course, by the end of this chapter, is going on to help create an independent new organization 
yes. that's going to do yep. direct action in the same way that um, Reverend Shuttlesworth ha- has already done in Birmingham. And and this is the thing that, uh, of course, um, people like um, Wilkins and Marshall are worried about because the, there's no longer going to be a, a, a central organizing structure of the black freedom movement and they're not going to run it and they're not going to be the ones raising the money um so and they're they're people of substance right of course thurgood marshall was the one who who argued brown versus board of education they've accomplished things and yet now there's a new dynamic and a new movement with new leadership uh, that's not them and they don't control so it's hard not to be sympathetic for me to sort of both sides. Sure, of this, absolutely. Right? And violence is occurring here. I mean, three sticks of dynamite explode at uh, Reverend Greats' front yard. He's the white minister. Um, police are going into his house, like taking stuff from him. And his kid, like the, his kid, yells at the police officers as they write. King writes a letter to the White House about violence in Montgomery and, and segregation and this problem. And um, what does Eisenhower do? Well, I'll tell you what he does. He sits with the black guy at a baseball game. And then he <laughs> and he meets with Adam Clay Powell Jr. and it's like publicized. So that's what he does. And guess what? That was smart because he gets elected. And actually Montgomery goes more for Eisenhower, more for Republicans than it has in the past. So just this BS theatrics helps. And it's terrible, but that well, works. It, it helps because it's exposing Adlai Stevenson Yes, as um, as a little bit of a fraud. Adlai so, Stevenson is the Democratic uh, nominee for president. He's Democratic nominee, sort of great Illinois liberal, and yet he's afraid to take a position against racism because he can't afford to alienate the southern base of the party, which of course is a white supremacist base. And so, by making these public gestures in the media, appearing with his black staff uh, person, and then getting Powell, who is a powerful up and coming. Democratic member of Congress from Harlem to endorse him against his own party, he sets himself up in the media, of course, and, and in and in the black media, mm-hmm. right? Because again, this is something that Eisenhower and the Republicans figure out, right? That there are black newspapers and black people are buying them and reading them, and it's like a big shift in in the vote right. too. And I, I and I think Eisenhower, or at least Eisenhower's people, are 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 really smart about this because the fact that the president is sitting at a baseball game with a black staff person is probably not news in mm-hmm. i don't know the new pittsburgh. orleans times picayune or the you know but in the the, the pittsburgh um courier it would have been right, right? they would have written about Big it, black baby, right yeah. but maybe not the post gazette and so he's able to win black sympathy without alienating, alienating very many white people while also kind of um screwing adlai stevenson and it worked so legally things start to get dark for the boycott now remember if this is uh november so this is going for over a year. Well, not over a year, like 10 months. OK, so uh, the MIA's biggest fear was this legal weapon to, to, to kind of end the, the car pulling situation. I'm sorry. There's one other thought that occurs to me here just about this thing about the 1956 election. Yeah, go ahead. That black votes in Montgomery, Alabama, help carry the city, if not the state, for Eisenhower. Branch doesn't say anything about this, but it kind of lines up with the reference earlier about how Dr. King wanted members of Dexter to register to vote. Mm -hmm. Part of the way that I learned about the black freedom movement is that black people were not allowed to vote 
and that as a result of the freedom movement, people could vote. Right, right, right. But clearly, it was a mixed picture. Oh, and for sure. In some places, some black people did vote and had managed to register mm-hmm. to vote. And so clearly in Montgomery, as opposed to like some rural area in Mississippi, there was somewhat more tolerance. Right. And enough that some people it, could vote and make a difference. Right, right. So this is the, right after the election, and city officials say they the, the MIA would be fined $15,000 and the, the carpool is going to be banned. So they actually go to court. They're in court over this. And then it comes out that the MIA has... 189000 in the bank, which ridicules King, and it's not really looking good. And this is almost a year now. Then during recess, one of the court recesses, the heavens open up. Beethoven plays. Da, 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 da. Okay, that's silly. Okay. The Supreme Court affirmed a th- a three, the three-judge panel. Segregation on buses is banned. Celebration. Happy days. Yay. Um, this is awesome. It's over. It's done. But <laughs> so the bus boycott is over. Kind of. So they have to have this long, uh, it's kind of like victory lap because it doesn't go into effect right away. But the civil rights movement in America is excited. And... Uh, King organizes an institute on nonviolence and social change. And I want to just read the six lessons that he summed up. Mm. One, we have have discovered that we can stick together for a common cause. Super important. Number two, our leaders do not have to sell out. Three, threats and violence do not necessarily intimidate those who are sufficiently aroused and nonviolent. Four, our church is becoming militant, stressing a social gospel as well as a gospel of personal salvation. That's interesting. Five, we have gained a new sense of dignity and destiny. And six, we have discovered a new and powerful weapon, nonviolent resistance. Then on December 20th, this is like basically a year now, um, King and Smiley ride the bus together. Uh, That really should be the end of the chapter. And (laughs) we could end there. But unfortunately, there's more in the chapter. And I, I want to like just talk about these other points because the, 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 the freaking violence continues. It's like white people are pissed off. There's more bombings. Uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth, who we briefly mentioned, who's actually, I think, a friend. I don't know how they know each other. I don't know if they know each other or not. His house is bombed in Birmingham. Um, bullets are shot at an integrated bus. A woman's in the hospital. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference is started by King. Now, the Garrow book mentions that it was originally called the Southern Leadership Conference and that it was Rustin's idea to add the word Christian. Now, this is a podcast by Paul and Gabe. Don't take our word for it, but that's not mentioned in the um, in the uh, the other book, um, in the branch book. So, um, And then, sadly, there's like, MIA is losing steam. Um, Nixon's getting upset at King, um, that he's getting all the attention. There's talk about, let's expand this to the airport. Let's go to the airport. And have, what a zany idea. Not a good idea. No one's taking, there's not a lot of black people and really people in general this time flying. Um, Bob Williams, who we don't, we didn't mention, but it's an old friend of, uh, of King. They went to Morehouse. His house is bombed. Um, and the KKK and the white citizens council is, um, you know, getting, getting picking up steam like unfortunately um 
I want to say, is there anything else that we want to talk about? I have some eyes on the prize things I want to say. Or should I do that? And then, or do you want to end? Well, I, I mean, I I think this ending of recrimination and jealousy and frustration. Hold on one second. My son's interrupting the podcast. Hold on. Wait, hold on. Go ahead. I think it's poignant how even after the triumph, or as the triumph is, is happening in Montgomery, the MIA, MIA is sort of falling victim to recrimination and jealousy and factionalism and sort of class discrimination and how King takes it so personally that this is a movement of human beings, not a movement of saints. And the, the tensions and contradictions that are there come out and King again is a very young person right, right. who suddenly has been thrust into uh, national prominence and leadership of a mass movement, and uh, I mean his reaction to it is I find really mature, humane. super right, humane, right? mature. It, 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 he's depressed. He, yeah, he he wonders has he failed people? Yeah, that this is sort of taking shape around him. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope people enjoyed this episode. Um, I feel like we covered everything about the bus boycott. And uh, again, the next chapter we're going to get into with where does King go after this? He, does he just end? Obviously he doesn't. Um, but I highly rec- recommend people watch that Eyes on the Prize first episode. You really see the funny garb of the KKK and their silky, shiny, shimmery clothes. It's really void of racism and stuff like that. It's just an odd way of dressing. Okay. okay, you can laugh. All right. I mean, should we laugh about violence? No, but... It's funny to laugh at those goofballs. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye.